You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and it is so good to be gathered together as God's people. And I want to remind you this morning that at Redeemer, we want to be a people of gratitude in a culture of complaint. Now, I know we're coming out of a season of a long year, a couple years. Um, there, lots of you are walking through different things, and, and oftentimes our hearts can be prone to complaining. We can be prone to get caught up in the culture of, oh, this is not right, and that is not right. And, and there is a place for lament, and we've talked about that. But there's also a place to give God thanks, to recognize the different gifts he's put in our lives, and to essentially say, thank you, Jesus, right? This morning, thank you, Jesus, for life. Thank you, Jesus, that we, our cars worked and we got here. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to gather and be reminded of who you are and what you've done. And so here's what I want to do. You're going to have to get interactive this morning, so I'm going to wake you up. I know this is the later service, but you know some of you sleep later. So um, here's what I want us to do. I just want us to take 15 seconds and give God thanks. Just say, Jesus, thank you for, and just say it out loud right where you're at. 15 seconds. Ready? Let's go. Jesus, thank you for our bread. Thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we brought us here. Thank you, Jesus. King Jesus, we come to you this morning and collectively say thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you that you have brought us here this morning in spite of a hectic week or a crazy morning to worship you. God, we don't take for granted that you would lower yourself to come and be with us. Sinful people, you've made a way through Jesus that we can be a part of your family. We can be forgiven. So we praise you for that. We thank you for all the little gifts that we experience today. We thank you that we have this building to gather in. We thank you that you have taken care of us as a church and as individuals all along the way. And we praise you for your many gifts. Help us to cultivate being a thankful people in a culture that is often so prone to mere complaints. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are back in our series, God of Refuge. We've been walking through the Psalms of Ascent, which is essentially Psalm 120 through 134. And we've seen that these Psalms were given as a sort of portable worship service for the people of Israel. When Israel was exiled, they couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't worship as they were accustomed, but they still had God's word residing in their hearts. And even later Israelites, as they came back for the main major feasts of the year, would, would sing these psalms, these, four, these the particular uh, psalms of ascent, as they returned to worship in the temple. Uh, and so we've seen these psalms are a source of renewal. They're, they're helping us worship God no matter what circumstances we're in or where we are along the journey. And our text today moves us into Psalm 132. Now, most of the psalms that we've read throughout this series have been pretty short. Maybe you've gotten a little spoiled. I've gotten a little spoiled as a preacher. You maybe have expected shorter sermons. You know, might, might or might not be the case, but... Today's psalm, as we read, is 18 verses, and it's rich. 
with beautiful insights about who God is and what he's done. And essentially, our psalm is broken up into two parts, and we're going to look at those. The first part is looking at David's promise. It's remembering David's promise to create a space for God to dwell among his people, David's heart to build the temple. And the second part of the psalm recounts God's promise to come and dwell with his people, not only his promise, but his delight in doing so. And through this, we'll see that our deepest need is for God's presence and power to come and rule over our lives. We'll see that we need a new kind of king. We need God to come to be with us and to rule over us. So let's go ahead and jump into our text. We'll start in verse 1 and read verses 1 through 10 here. Verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Epaphra. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Here in the first half of our psalm, the the psalmist uh, who is most likely Solomon uh, calls attention to, to, to God's building of the temple, really to him putting it on David's heart to create a space where God would dwell. The temple represented this space where God's dwelling and human dwelling overlapped and it came together. It was a sign to them that God is here, he is present, and he is ruling. And David is the one who God put it on his heart to build the temple, the center of worship, to be this visible reminder to Israel of God's presence among his people. But remember that those uh, in Israel's history, those who were most likely singing this psalm, had been exiled from Jerusalem. They, they weren't able to go to the temple and worship. And so you, you see how this psalm even is calling back their memory to remember that God did this through David and to, and to look back that God's heart is to dwell among his people. And so the psalm begins by reminding them of King David. Now, King David, if you know his story, was not a perfect man. He was far from a perfect man. Sometimes we tell Bible stories like all these heroes, and, and he, was, he had questionable character in many ways. But we know from the scriptures that David was a man who longed for God. David was a man who repented and knew the depths of his sins, and he knew that God must come and be present if we are to get anywhere in this world. The psalm is actually imploring God to remember David's labor, his strife, his struggle, his promise to make a dwelling for God. Verses 2 through 5 tell us about this, how uh, David makes a vow that that he's not going to put his head on the pillow, essentially, until God has a house, until God has a place where his presence may dwell. Essentially, he's saying, I'm not going to rest until I've made a house for God to dwell in. Now, this isn't because David thinks uh, God is like, you know, he's kind of off in heaven 
and heaven's a little far out from the inner part of the city and God needs, you know, God needs some closer real estate. It's not because like, you know, many of you right now, maybe you're searching for a house and you can't find one here. It's not like God is like, hey, David, I really need you to come through and get me a house. You know, like I, I, I'm really, you know, I need a place to live. It's not that. It's that David knows that at the heart of the human problem is that the father's not home. It's that there's separation between man and God. And David is crying out and longing for God to come and make his dwelling amongst his people. David's longing to find a place for God is about David recognizing that our deepest need is God's nearness. And Israel, and by extension, all of humanity, desperately need God to dwell among us. We need his presence and power here on earth. This isn't just a cry for God to come and be my next door buddy, my next door neighbor. This is a cry for God to come in his glory, in his splendor, so that he rules over us. It's God to be near so his power and presence might set the world right. You see, God's presence, when he shows up in his glory, it leads us to worship. And by nature, worship leads us to yielding and, 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 and following after God. God doesn't have to be a king that demands loyalty. He's a king that by his very presence uh, necessitates and, and changes us to want to be loyal, to want to follow in his ways. When we, when we see his glory, when his presence is near, our hearts say, I want to follow that God. I believe he is the way to life. See, the essence of sin is often that we forget or we forsake God's presence. We ignore his presence. The, the New City Catechism, which our children are going through in their classes, uh, question number 16 is, is what is God? And the, I mean, sorry, what is sin? Um, be a different answer to what is God. This is what is sin. And, and the answer, the New City Catechism says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. You see, sin is not just doing bad things. Sometimes we have a real... Small definition of sin. Sin is, has to do with our affection and our attention to God. Sin is not just doing bad things. It's doing, it's doing anything as a godless thing. Ignoring God's presence and power in the world. Ignoring his glory and the, and the due worship that he deserves. And when God is absent, when, when his glory and his presence is absent, our hearts look to something else to worship. And David knows this. He knows this by experience. He knows the allure of beauty. You think of the story of Bathsheba where his heart was lured away from Yahweh and faithfulness to Yahweh to worship the beauty of Bathsheba. That What did it do to his actions? It led him to commit adultery and later murder Uriah, her husband. David knows the danger of living apart from God. And it's from this place that you hear this desperate cry, God, you have to come. You have to be here. You have to show up in power and rule over us. You see, worship and rule go hand in hand. Whatever we worship, 
Whatever we give our affection and our attention to will direct our actions, our behavior. It'll give shape to that. And David, the highest human authority, realizes that he isn't the Savior. He isn't the one to set the world right. He knows that he's just yet another messed up human. You ever felt that imposter syndrome? Like, I'm sure David felt that imposter syndrome, being the highest authority in the land, knowing that in the depths of his heart, he too was broken. And his rule was not able to bring about the world that we all long for. And he knew it. He was aware of his utter sinfulness and his inability to set Israel right, to make the kingdom of God happen on planet Earth. He did his best to represent God, but ultimately, David fell short. In some ways, I think that David can be ahead of us at times because he recognized his sinfulness. Um, I know in my own life, there have been times where my ego or pride, or we might call it our flesh, leads me to think that if, if I were king everything would be okay, right? Sometimes we have this attitude. Maybe some of you other uh, control freaks can relate with me here um, and tell me I'm not crazy. Um, but but we, we think, hey, if everyone would just kind of do it my way and be like me, everything in the world would kind of flow and be okay. Come on, you can confess that. You know that that's there. I mean, think about it. Think about what comes out in, in, in your life when... Uh, when, when our plan doesn't happen. Think about what comes out when things don't go the way you think they should go. When your plans for the day, maybe you outline this awesome plan for your day and you get things done and it gets interrupted. What happens when after church and the place you want to go eat, kids, is not picked by mom or dad? But parents, you can, you can also uh, be ones to throw a fit in that case. When your candidate doesn't win the election... Think about what comes out when your authority is challenged, or maybe more closer to home, your parenting is challenged. When a child disrespects you, when a boss asks you to do it in a different way that you don't think is the best. When you receive counsel from a a brother or sister in Christ that tells you your plans are foolish, or maybe they're even going against God's word. What about when your cultural preferences are challenged? We could go on and on of the ways that when we encounter uh, other authorities, it's easy for us to think that, man, if everyone was just like me and did things like me, the world would be okay. We all have that subtle part in us that says, if only I were king, then everything would be all right. If I just had enough science, if I just had enough strength, if I just had enough uh, skills and time, I could set this thing right, no problem. Like, I'll, I'll be honest, there are days when I behave as if I could be king, or there's someone, some other human who I put my worship and trust to be that. And I want us to just take an honest assessment of this and ask, if we were really in power, if we were really given the place of all authority, would the world really be set right? Are we really different than the hundreds and thousands of other leaders, political figures, kings that have come before us, would we really be the ones who finally get it right? And I would contest that we wouldn't, that we're no different, that in many ways we're just like David. He just recognized his emptiness. And we're left wrestling with the question, so how then will the world be set right? What power, what leader is going to come and set this whole thing right? Who's it going to be? Thankfully, 
the biblical story is predominantly concerned with answering this question. How is God going to set the world right? You know, sometimes I think when we approach the gospel, we come with a really small question of how can I, as an individual, be saved? And that's addressed. But the big question of the Bible is, what's God going to do about this whole sin problem? What's he going to do with the whole of creation that has been fractured and broken? What's he going to do with this world that has gotten so out of control? We'll get back to that question in a minute. Let's look back at David in our psalm. You see, David knew that as much as he sought to follow God, to rule in a way that God would be pleased that he fell short. And ultimately, he was not the king whose rule would restore the world. David was not the savior king. Now, if David's not the savior king, I just want to tell you something. You're not the savior king. And I, want you, I told you we're going to be interactive today. I want you to say, it. Say, I am not the savior. Say it with me. Ready? I am not the savior. Okay? We are not the ones who are going to set the world right. I can't even rule myself. How am I going to rule the entire world? We're not better than David. We're sinful just like him. And when we recognize that no human, not even us, is fit to rule and redeem and restore the world and set it right, we're postured to begin to look Godward for answers. In our text, David is committed to making space for God to come and dwell with his people because he knew that was the only thing that was going to set this world right, is if God would come and dwell in his presence and power and glory. That's the only thing. David longed for God's presence and rule to be near. He isn't sleeping until God has a place with us. And so he makes this vow. He makes this promise to God. He knows that our biggest problem is that we're separated from God. If we were to boil it down, we were to say the biggest problem is dad's not home with us. And we need him home. Let's keep reading verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, and their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests will, I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him uh, his crown will shine. The first part of this psalm recounts David's oath to God. And I think this second part is even more important than David's oath. This is God's oath to David. This is God's promise that he makes to his people. And there's a lot of really good news here. God is saying, not only will I come, but I'd be delighted to come. I'd be delighted to come and dwell. And when I come and dwell, the world is going to be set right. Did you see that hinted at in this psalm? The poor are going to be fed. The priests are going to live in righteousness. Those in power are going to use it with equity and fairness. The world is going to be set right when I come. And oh, I long to come and I will come. But in verse 12, we get a condition. Look at, look at what he says in verse 12. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. So there's good news, but there's also tension here 
Because David's already made us a little nervous that, okay, if he's the best king, uh, who's going to be the son to come and, and live faithfully and righteously so that this promise will, will happen, so that the world can be set right? Well, we might think, well, Solomon, he's the one who actually built the temple. Maybe it was Solomon. If you know Solomon's story, you're like, nope. But, but just hang in there for a second. Maybe, maybe it's Solomon, right? In 1 Kings uh, chapter 10, we get this little picture of Israel for really for the first time since captivity where they're not wandering, where the temple is built, where things, I mean, they're high-fiving and it's going well and there's, you know, kind of milk and honey, whatever that, you know, symbolically means in the land and, and things are well. And, and you kind of start thinking, okay, here it is. This is it. Maybe it's Solomon, the son, literally the son of David, like he's going to make it happen. And then you just have to turn one chapter to 1 Kings chapter 11 and you read this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, uh, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, and on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did all this for his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Here's the point of 1 Kings uh, chapter 11. <laughs> not only was Solomon not the answer, he made his father look like a saint. And the issue here, it's not that he, marrying foreign people, is that's not the issue. The issue is his worship of other gods, of being led away to worship those which are not God and giving his loyalty to other gods. And if you go on to follow the Old Testament story, you read those very depressing books at times of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Chronicles, you see a continual progression of kings rising up who were most, for the 99.9% part, evil and wicked men. There's like two that were decent. And you're left with this tension of who is the king, who's the son of David, who will come and, and keep the covenant to God so that the world could be set right. Who's this son of David? This is the question that, that the Old Testament leaves the Israelites asking. It leaves in this time of tension that, hey, God's promised to set the world right. He's going to do it. He's going to dwell with us. But, he's, but there's this condition. But what's going to happen? What's going to fulfill the terms of the covenant? And it's in this tension. It's in this waiting that the New Testament, that the gospel of Jesus takes its place and gets its context. 
I want to turn quickly to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. And I want you to hear this often, uh, often said scripture, often around Christmas, in light of the tension we just unpacked. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is born a son of David and son of God. Born unlike any other king. Born not with the pattern or the the, the stain of sin, but born sinless to the Virgin Mary. He lived a life unlike any previous person before him, perfectly submitted to his Father, fulfilling his covenant at every step of the way. Unlike previous kings, he did not use his power or authority to harm others, but he used his power to bring healing and restoration throughout his earthly ministry. Unlike other kings, rather than violently taking the throne and fighting for power, he lays down his life and dies for his enemies. He becomes king not by violence, but through crucifixion. He's buried and raised on the third day. On his coronation day, he ascends to the throne of heaven and he pours out the first fruits of the new creation, his Holy Spirit, upon his church, the new temple. That first Peter tells us he's building as not as, as brick stones, but as living stones, people who he's pouring out his spirit in to be a signpost of the presence of God in our world. You see, Jesus is the one, he is the king, he is the son of David who would come and fulfill the covenant so that the kingdom, that the fullness of the new creation could come. And right now he's dwelling in the seat of all power and he's given time for those who've trespassed against his rule and his reign to repent and turn away from following the gods of, of, of Asher and Moab and of technology and science and all the little gods we make or of our own little kingdoms and turn to the King Jesus. See, this is the good news of the gospel that God in Christ has become King And he's offered to those who've trespassed and ignored his rule a way to be forgiven and included in that kingdom. He's given his own body and blood so that we could come in, not just as citizens of heaven, that is great, but as sons and daughters. So that we could be the very housing of divine presence as the temple together. And so the call today for us as we hear this gospel proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
is one of confrontation. For some of us, maybe your whole life has been characterized by you've been your own king. Or maybe you've been submitted to some other ruler. You see, the gospel says there is none other king than Jesus. Every other person, ourselves included, leads us to live a life that that dehumanizes us, that leads us to destruction and death. Only submitted to King Jesus do we find life. And for those of us today that are here, those of you today that are here that you've never surrendered to King Jesus, the call is to say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I have tried to be king of my life. I have worshipped other idols, and you alone are the living God. And when you turn to Jesus, he doesn't execute you. He doesn't take justice on you. He pleads his own blood over you and says, I accept you. I welcome you into my family. Now let's get about this kingdom business. I'm going to fill you with my spirit. We're going to extend this kingdom and this reign throughout the entire world. There are others of us, perhaps, that have come in that have walked with Jesus. We've surrendered to him. But there's parts of our life that we've been sitting on the throne. And remember, we've already established, just like David, we're not very good rulers. And perhaps today there's an area of your life where where the Spirit is, is pleading with you, compelling you to say, hey, you can step off the throne. It's exhausting trying to stay in control. It's exhausting trying to do things your way. Step off the throne. Surrender to King Jesus. Let me lead. I love that, by the way, the Spirit's role is to to bring us all under the rule of Jesus. Whenever we get wayward, the Spirit brings us back under his gracious reign. Jesus is the King who has come. He is the one who will bring about the restoration of all things, including you and me. This morning, our call is to turn to him and give him our faith, our loyalty, our worship, and allow his spirit to direct our steps as we go throughout this week. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious to us that when we made a mess of this planet, when we made a mess of our world, you didn't abandon us, You didn't destroy us, but you came to redeem us. When we couldn't live up to the righteous standard, to the the terms of the deal, you came and lived up to the deal for us so that we could come into your kingdom. So I pray today that as we behold your presence here in your church, that you would lead our hearts to yield to you, to surrender where we have tried to take control and tried to sit on the throne that we could get off and confess that you are the only one worthy of rule. That we, like David, would say, God, if you don't come, if your presence is not here, we have no hope. We need you, Lord. Rule over us by your Holy Spirit. Lead us to the way of life, the way of Jesus. It is in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.